bivocational. In addition to doing this, of course, I have a small contracting company. And uh, in the context of that company, we recently come to a decision. It was a long time coming. It is, we are not doing any more foundation work. We, it's too dangerous, it's too dirty, uh, and it opens us up to considerable liability because we are not a foundation repair company. Uh, but we get called on a lot, particularly by real estate agents, to look at foundation issues and uh, begin to realize the reason that they're calling on me is not because of my expertise as a foundation person, but they're calling on me because they're hoping for a solution that will be cheaper and easier than the solution proposed by the foundation company. Because if you call uh, one of the foundation recovery companies, they like to do things like jack up your whole house and pour new concrete and do all that kind of stuff. And of course, nobody wants to spend 10 or 20 or $30,000 fixing their foundation, so they're looking for the easy way out. But rarely is cheap and easy compatible with a good solid foundation. Just doesn't work that way. Uh, that's also true of our spiritual foundation. Cheap and easy rarely works as a methodology for building a good, solid spiritual foundation for your life. Though that doesn't keep us from trying. We st we're, we're, looking, we're looking for that shortcut. Uh, we, as we talked about last week, in terms of the gospel message, achieving salvation through Jesus Christ is, is relatively the simple part of the equation. Uh, it's simply a matter of faith. Now, it might take us considerable time, might take us uh, effort to change our thinking, change our mind, change our heart, or to be changed by the work of the Spirit upon us in order to reach that point where we're ready to follow Jesus, but simply believing and following Jesus is your salvation. That's, that's the whole package. The rest of it doesn't come quite so easy. We want spiritual maturity to come to us in the same sort of simple fashion that salvation does, and it doesn't really work that way. I had a member at our church in Colorado uh, who shared with me her philosophy about this. She had this idea that because Jesus said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, it meant that anything that was not easy wasn't coming from Jesus. I thought, I wonder how all the Christian martyrs, thousands of Christian martyrs over the centuries would feel about that message that, oh, yeah. It's easy to follow Jesus. Being burned at the stake, being uh, thrown to the lions, it's all, it's all pretty easy. Uh, that's, not the, that's not really the message at all. That's not what we're supposed to take away from that. But we do have this tendency, and I think the church in the modern era has kind of amplified this tendency to, to make people think that, uh, that, that spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and spiritual understanding will come easy in the same sense that salvation came easy. Kind of like when you're uh, back in school and you, and you, you didn't want to cram for that math test, so you slide the algebra book under your pillow and hope that 
as you sleep, you know, by osmosis, it comes into your head. That's what we would like. We'd like to sort of stick our Bible under our pillow and have all that wisdom and all that maturity just sort of develop within us without our having to try. And yet, uh, Scripture describes this very differently. Hebrews 5 says, it's by constant use that we learn to distinguish right from wrong. It's, uh, according to Romans 12, it's by transformation, it's by the renewing of our mind that we come to understand the will of God. Second uh, Timothy 2, it's, it's diligent work that brings us to the point that we can rightly divide the word of truth. In other words, God's will and righteousness can only be discerned by those who search them out. There's plenty about himself that Jesus just wants us to know and experience directly, but there are some things that Scripture is pretty consistent about. That if we want to really comprehend God's will, if we really want to know about his righteousness, we're going to have to look for them. Jesus says, seek and you'll find. He doesn't say, sit still and it'll come to you. The promise is that you'll find it if you're looking for it, but you've got to look for it. You've got to go after it. God's will and his righteousness are two things that Scripture consistently describes to us as things that we've got to work towards to understand. And his will and his righteousness really are two sides of the same coin. God's perfect will flows out of his righteousness, and it is his will that we would be righteous. But these things are clouded to us. They're difficult. Even with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, they can be very difficult to discern. Even when we're in Christ, it is an effort to understand the righteousness of God. Not, not the, in the least because there are so many alternative moralities with which we're confronted all the time. We're being told lies every day about what's right, about what's true, about what's wise. So Paul says in our study, uh, ongoing study in Colossians, he says in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So Paul's concern here is that the people will be deceived, that they'll be deceived by what he calls fine-sounding arguments. And his answer to this is that they would be pursuing Christ, that they'd be pursuing maturity, they, they would know Jesus a little more all the time, that they would be diving deeper into this mystery and all of this wisdom and knowledge that is hidden within Christ. This is, this is following really what's sort of an ancient biblical axiom, which is that wisdom requires diligence, 
and foolishness is free. Want foolishness? It'll, it, it'll just come. Wisdom requires effort. The arrival of the Holy Spirit into the life of the church doesn't change the fact that wisdom requires pursuit. This wisdom, this mystery hidden in Christ is to be particularly desired. Now, I don't want to stand before you claiming, that because I can, I'm preaching to you about this, that I have all of the wisdom that I need. I don't have nearly as much wisdom as I know I ought to have. What I will say, though, is that what I know about the world, what I know about the faith, what I know about the church comes directly from here. And this is the source of wisdom upon which we need to most directly rely. Generally, the more we learn about Christ, the more we become familiar with Christ, the more we know his word, the more we know what he taught, the less we realize we know. We become humbled, honestly, by trying to follow after Jesus sincerely. On the other hand, a lack of wisdom is often accompanied by an abundance of confidence. In other words, the dumber we are, the prouder we are of our ignorance. The prouder we are of what we think we know. We can watch this playing out in the culture around us, plenty of people who have a lot to say, but who have no wisdom, no basis, no knowledge from which to say what they want to say. But this is also particularly true of people of faith. And I think it's because People of faith, we, we've, we've sort of been sold this bill of goods that says that faith is all personally held. That rather than being a universal, absolute, godly, divine truth that exists outside of ourselves, whether we acknowledge it or not, faith in our culture is something that you've just adopted and you believe whatever you want. And so uh, we have kind of this notion that we possess Wisdom based on the faith that we've built that happens to be founded upon the wisdom that we already have. Proverbs 18 and 2 says, uh, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. We all know that guy. We've all met that guy. We've had long conversations with that guy. That guy is becoming uh, arguably more common in our culture. Sometimes that guy is us. Because in our culture, we have been taught that the source of knowledge that you can rely on, the source of knowledge that's available to every last one of us, that's true and right and good, the source of knowledge, it's not Scripture, it's not Christ, it's not even the church. The source of knowledge that you can rely on is personal experience. But you'll just know it. Now, when I say personal experience, I, I want to draw a distinction here between personal experience and life experience. 
all of us have life experience, and life experience can, in fact, if we allow it, teach us some wisdom. Because life experience imparts wisdom by testing assumptions against reality. We try something, and we fail, and if we have any wisdom at all to begin with, we learn new wisdom by having failed in the attempt. That's life experience. That's a college of hard knocks, sometimes we call it. Life experience can teach us a certain amount of wisdom. Personal experience is different. Personal experience processes reality through our emotions and assumptions. So in other words, where life experience, we start with our assumptions, we test them against reality, and they either, either succeed or fail. Personal experience reshapes our understanding of reality in light of our emotions and assumptions. Now, we talked just a few weeks ago about relativism in the culture. One of the things that we, we have learned about relativism is that relativism says that truth is not an absolute external reality, that truth is subjective, that each person determines based on their own uh, feelings and perceptions what the truth really is. Well, basically what that's telling us is that relativism regards personal experience as the highest form of knowledge. It can't not come to that conclusion. There's no other way. Because if all truth is relative, if all wisdom, if all knowledge is relative to the individual, then it is only in the perception of the individual that these truths are found. And so our personal experience is, in fact, our reality. Which is fascinating, because relativism tends to challenge all forms of knowledge. Relativism has certainly challenged religion. It has often challenged history. It even challenges science. Relativism lately has even been challenging mathematics, which we all assume to be completely rational. But now we've treated it as subjective. However, in this religion of relativism, personal experience is unassailable. We cannot question it. Someone says, this is my personal experience. This is how I felt. This is, this is how I perceive this thing to be true. We're not allowed to question it. Whatever I feel is, in fact, my reality. And don't you dare step on my reality. Facts become irrelevant. And feelings are assigned wisdom. We hear messages in the culture Trust your feelings. Follow your heart. Because somehow, your feelings are trying to reveal to you some deep truth that you would not find through your senses. Things are exactly as you feel they are, even when objective evidence arises to contradict what your feelings are telling you, your feelings are still correct. We've seen this in our media, we've seen this in the news cycle, you see this in the culture, you see this on social media all the time, whatever I feel, 
that's what must be true, whether or not it makes any sense, whether or not the facts support it. But this has also crept into Christian thought and Christian dialogue. I hear us using the language of personal experience all the time. That feels right to me. That feels true. This was my experience, so it must be so. We get into a very dangerous space when we start to interpret what is actually true through the filter of that feels true to me. And I don't mean to dismiss your personal experience altogether. Your emotions are real, they're a part of you, and they're supposed to be considered as part of the whole. But we need to be very careful. We need to recognize the limitations of personal experience in revealing that truth, particularly in regard to what is righteous. What is good and what is evil? Is that something that takes effort to understand, or is it something that we just understand instinctually? Here's some of the limitations of personal experience in regard to righteousness. First of all, we are informed by the moral assumptions of the culture. Paul's concern is what? Paul's concern is that people will be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. Here's the question. How does something that is objectively, spiritually, and in every other way a lie sound fine? How does it sound reasonable? Well, of course, there are ways that we can shape that message to make it sound reasonable. We can leave out a lot of the facts. We can tell you part of the story, the part of the narrative that we want you to know, and leave out all the other parts. But really, what makes it sound fine, what makes it sound reasonable, what makes it sound acceptable is that we find ourselves immersed in a context, in a cultural context that normalizes whatever it is. And our cultural context normalizes sin. And so what seems reasonable in this context to people what seems acceptable, what sounds like a fine-sounding argument in people's ears, sounds that way because they already exist in a context in which the culture has normalized that and said that it's good. So we're not coming to the conclusion that it's good and right based on some universal absolute standard that just happens to exist in my gut somewhere. We're coming to the conclusion that it's right because the culture has already primed us to believe that it is right. We evaluate these principles of truth, these principles of Scripture even, on our feelings about them as if we're being informed by a universal standard of truth. The question for us as Christians is, are we really being informed by the word and spirit when we are evaluating what is true, or are we being informed by the culture that's actually advocating the sin that they would like to say to us is truth and righteousness? The 
Secondly, we adopt the moral assumptions of our company. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. This is the truth. This is unavoidable. It doesn't tell us to separate ourselves completely from the world, but we need to know what it is that we're dealing with. We have a tendency as human beings to become apologists for the behavior of people that we like or love. We know good people. We have people that we care about, and they are involved in sin. And so what do we do? We start to rationalize that sin. We, we start to make it okay somehow. Start to back. We don't, we don't want to be judgmental. And they don't want us to be judgmental either. They'll let us know. Stop judging me. You'll hear that message. Why? Because I want to participate in whatever sin I've chosen to participate in, and I certainly don't want you telling me there's some universal truth that undermines my idea about it. And so what do we do? We begin to adopt these notions. And so you spend time with people, and what happens? Things that maybe initially you recognize as immoral kind of become common. Maybe begin to adopt some of their behaviors. Maybe begin to adopt some of their language. Maybe begin to adopt some of their thinking. Scripture tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. It's really a mark of developing spiritual maturity. That ability to enter into worldly situations and to be more of an impact on that situation than that situation is on us, to have more impact on the lives of others than their lives have on us. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by breaking free of this notion that my gut will tell me what's right. Trust Jesus to tell me what's right, no matter what the circumstance and no matter how much I love the people who are far from Jesus. And we should love people who are far from Jesus. But that doesn't mean we can change righteousness to suit them. Thirdly, we replicate the moral assumptions of our past. This is why our past has so much power over our lives, so much power over us, because our history, no matter how broken, no matter how abusive or damaged or whatever else was going on there, our history feels normal to us. And so if we're making decisions about what's good and right based on what feels okay to us, we will often replicate the mistakes of the past just because they feel normal. Because that is a, that's the standard by which we're operating. And how many times have, have you or someone close to you grown up in a situation that they swore they would never do what mom and dad did. I will never do what, what, what this friend of mine did. I, will, I would never get caught up in that. And then what happens? We find ourselves following the exact same path, doing the exact same thing. Why is that? Because the past, no matter how broken, no matter how much we dislike it, no matter how much re we recognize the fault in it, the past feels normal to us. And if I'm going to make decisions based on my personal experience, I'm going to 
create a morality of what feels normal to me, even if there's nothing good in it. And so my righteousness becomes defined by my past. This is one of the most important lessons of the gospel is that once we let go of that need to define goodness, to define righteousness, to define truth based on what we know and what we think and what we feel, we become freed from our past because we allow Jesus to define those things for us. And fourthly, lastly, we... We have this informant. Our informant, the heart, is notoriously deceitful. And we, we are counseled every day in this world to follow our hearts. But our feelings are ignorant. Not that they're unimportant. It's not that, 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 that you shouldn't have a relationship with your emotions. But understand this, your feelings are ignorant. Your feelings will make you do stupid things. How many of us have made decisions while we were highly emotional that later on we felt like were really great decisions? So glad I did that. Our emotions lead us astray all the time. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is deceitful above all things. Why is that? Well, reason can be manipulated. People can offer us false evidence to try to reason us into wrong thinking. That's not nearly as effective as manipulating our emotions, is it? In behavioral psychology, there's a field of study uh, called hindsight bias. And hindsight bias is basically the tendency of people, after they experience an unexpected event, to convince themselves that the event was completely expected, that they always sort of knew that that was going to happen. We do it because we have a hard time dealing with the reality of our situation that a lot of things are out of our control. We don't like feeling like things are out of our control. And so we convince ourselves that, yeah, I, I knew that was going to happen. I always knew that. There have been several studies where people are presented with the findings of research. You tell people, uh, we did all this research with the, all these couples, and we found out that couples that share more in common do better. And you share that with people, and they'll say, well, of course. I always knew that birds of a feather flock together. Then you take to another group of people, Okay, we've done all this research with couples. We found that couples who were more dissimilar actually had healthier relationships. And everybody who heard that research said, well, of course, opposites attract. See, we already know. We convince ourselves that we already know. We have a hindsight bias. You give us information, and we'll decide we knew that information all along. Believe me. This comes up in preaching all the time. I work hard at knowing Jesus a little better all the time so that I can challenge you to know Jesus a little better all the time. But no matter what I share, there's a tendency for people to go, oh, yeah, I always knew that. Well, there's two impacts that this has. 
One is that we tend to dismiss new information. And the other is, even when we adopt that new information, because we believe we already had that information and we're already making the decisions that we made, when we're presented with information that should change our decision-making process, we don't change anything. We believe that we were already functioning with that knowledge, so why would we change anything now? You see, it takes away the impetus for us to make choices that might make life better. When we're presented with new truth that should be transformational, often it is not because our heart has told us we're fine where we are. Personal experience is decision-making by no observable objective standard and no eternal truth, no absolute eternal reality. It's simply me and my feelings. Now here's what I want you to understand about that this morning. It is a terrible burden and a costly mistake to be one's own foundation. It's not only like we're building on sand and the, and the, the building's going to collapse as soon as the storms come, but it's like we're supporting the whole structure on our own back. We're trusting ourselves to know what's truth, to know what's right, to know what's good, and then to somehow find the strength and the ability to live it out. We have a broken desire to have control over that, to be able to determine all those things for ourselves. And yet, we do not have the capacity to carry the load. We do not have the wisdom to make that kind of discernment. We don't have the ability to be our own foundation, and yet we keep trying, and the effort is crushing us. So when Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light in Matthew 11, he's essentially saying, why don't you let me carry what is mine to carry? Why don't you let me carry the burden of sharing what is true and what is right? And all you've got to do is search it out through me. Let me take that from you because it will crush you. And you'll get it wrong. And in getting it wrong, it will take you down self-destructive paths. We don't have to be the truth. We just have to search the truth out. And so Paul says, continuing there in Colossians 2, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. He says Christ is the foundation, of course, but Christ is the foundation of wisdom, courage, faith, and gratitude. Now, I think about our hope for the future, our hope for the future of this congregation, our hope for the future of believers in this place, our hope for the future of our children. And what do we want? What do we want but people who are wise, who are courageous, 
who are faithful and who are grateful. If we could possess those qualities, we'd really have something, wouldn't we? The world would look on us and wonder. These are the qualities that building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ developed in us. We have embraced uh, essentially an impossible role trying to define our own foundation of truth. We have built this foundation on the sands of our own moral ambiguity. And then when the foundation fails, when the sand gives way, when it all comes crashing down around us, we cry out to heaven surprised at our failure. You don't want the structure to collapse around you? Give back to Christ what he already owns. Let him define truth. Let him define righteousness. Let him define goodness. And then we will truly know freedom and peace.